From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers saving music journalism from death by clickbait. My name is Mickey Hellerback, and I'm here with Ryan Gore and Joshua Wadera. Uh, and we are very excited to is Brian is this our first our first actual official episode of the year or am I making that up uh, I think it is if you don't count the doom is one. it the first if we don't count the doom one I think I thought of the doom one as more of like it's a specialty special. episode but this is our kind of more regular schedule programming um, where separate pieces not all centered around one subject yeah um, the first so, sode yeah, of welcome. the season if you will exactly exactly so yeah it's it's good to get back into the swing of things thanks everyone who was listening in 2020 who's now back with us in 2021 and hopefully some new listeners um for yeah for those who are new to the show we pick a few pieces um from journalists we admire and uh talk through them about what they did well as journalists and about the topics at hand um so uh, first, before I kind of just do an intro of the title of the pieces, let's let's introduce everyone. So, Ryan, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my name's Ryan Gore, writer at Central Source. Um, on the website, you can find a lot of my words. Not very recent ones, but you can find some. Uh, I'm working on things, though, so, yeah, just keep tabs on that. And I think there's something else I wanted to say. Oh, yeah, just check out the Doom episode, please. It's right. really good. Definitely, yeah, I second that wholeheartedly. I think... Um... That was definitely one of our favorite episodes. Me, uh, Ryan, and Brandon, who's not here today, uh, we did. If you haven't listened to it yet, we did a full episode with pieces all centering around MF Doom, and um, yeah, I think we just had a really dope conversation. Um, Jeshma, yeah. you want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jeshma. I'm working on an interview with Samir Gadia for Young the Giant, so that's what I'm up to right now for Brown Girl, and then at Central Sauce. You should definitely check out the MF Doom podcast and do nothing else besides that and then this because it's actually that good. Hey. Yeah, man. RIP Doom forever. Um, yeah, I'm really interested to read that piece, Joshua, for sure. You said, wait, who are you? I didn't even, I don't know if I totally have talked about this with you. We, I think you mentioned it before. It's with Young Young the Giant. Yeah, so this is not a hip-hop entity, but Young the Giant is an alt-rock band and... Samir Gadi is their lead singer, so we talk about what it's yeah. like to make music at a time where people didn't really know the identities of the people making it. Dope. Well, yeah, I'm actually, I fuck with the Young and Giant Heavy, so I'm super excited to read that too. Um, yeah, so I'm Mickey Heller back to introduce myself for the, like, fourth time thus far um, <laughs> again, but I definitely have, um, sometimes I'm kind of don't know what to to you know, promote on here, but I definitely have very specific things to promote in this episode. Um, again, just to reiterate the MF Doom podcast, but also uh, recently I released a feature interview with a Baltimore artist, which is where I'm from originally, Miss Cam, who dropped an album called Two Faced, which is really incredible. She dropped it uh, right at the midnight mark when we transitioned into the new year. Um, and I just think we had a really amazing conversation about, uh, the music that she made on the album and the composition of it, as well as, um, her kind of, as I say in the piece, her communal come up, um, that she's trying to enact through her music. 
um and yeah i mean i love my city and i love the music that comes from it so definitely check that out and then also i just did a very extended feature length interview with eric the architect some may know him as eric arc elliott who is the producer and one of the rappers of flapper zombies as he just released his first solo ep future proof ep um and i can say far and away um it is if not my favorite interview with an artist or conversation with an artist i've ever had definitely in the top five not five um it's uh i just think we get really in depth um about who he is and where he comes from and how uh this kind of time that we're in has specifically affected him and, and, and urged him to transition into making music of his own. Um, so please check that out. That was, uh, for notion magazine that I, I composed that piece. Um, yeah. So what we haven't done in a while is do a sort of rundown of what we've been listening to, which we like to do to start out most of the episodes. So let's switch the order a little bit. Joshima, what have you been listening to? I've been listening to a ton of Chica and I mean, Brilliant is like an understatement. I think she's going to be one of the greatest rappers of all time. I said it. I believe it. I buy it. I think it's true. Um, And I'm a little disappointed in myself because a friend put me on in 2020 and then it occurred to me that the reason I hadn't heard of her is because literally her come up was so fast between 2019 and 2020. But she's 22 years old, turned down going to Berkeley College of Music and is now, dare I say, one of the greatest lyricists rappers musicians yeah she's super dope um i feel like just off of your intro that you should definitely pitch an interview with her and if there are any editors listening you should get joshima to interview her just because i feel like you have a very specific even in that short statement appreciation for the music and everyone should check out chica's uh tiny desk if they haven't because that is really uh so good one of the better ones and i've watched a lot of them which you would know if you've listened to previous episodes of In Search of Sauce. Tiny Desk, um, we love you here at Central Sauce. We do. Shout out Bobby Carter, you're the man. Shout out Bobby Carter, man. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, definitely check out Industry Games. Chica is incredible. Facts. Ryan, what have you been listening to? Uh, Navy Blue. Navy right. Blue released an album right at the end of last year. I, I think it might have been just on Christmas Day or something like that. But uh, he released two albums last year, Ada Irin and this one, um, Song of Sage Post Panic. And I'm just in love of how different these albums are. And he just sounds like a new artist on this album. He's he's like, he the, the difference in his writing is insane. That's something I really focus in on. And just like the terms of phrases he uses, there's similarities there and like the kind of flows he uses. But the things he's saying and the and the... Almost like the passion behind what he's saying is just completely different. The intent's completely different. And yeah, I'm in love with that album. Um, the fifth song on there, uh, what's it called? Uh, Certainty. It's one of my favourite beats, one of my favourite songs of last year, I guess. I can't say it's this year because it wasn't really last year. Right, those kind of turn of the New Year albums always feel like kind of both. That's the same with that Miss Cam album I was talking about too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, there's a great Yasin Bey feature on there, great Billy Woods feature, so yeah, definitely listen to that one. Also, I've been listening to uh, Raven Lanay a lot, a lot oh, because I just want the album, man. <laughs> <laughs> I've been waiting on the album since Crush, right. and Crush is like one of my favourite EPs ever. Right. I really want that album. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I've definitely been listening to Eric the Architect, 
um, in the new EP because it, it, I mean, thus far there hasn't been much of a year yet, but I, I, <laughs> it was really crazy to talk to him and then have the body of work that he set these expectations for deliver in such a way. Um, that's a kind of crazy experience, at least for me, from the journalism perspective to like, wow, this like has such depth to it. And it's such and it's just an EP. But is this really going to live up to our conversation that we had, which was so in depth? And it really did, um, which is incredible to me. Uh, so if you haven't checked his EP, I think it's it's worthwhile. But really what I've been doing, listening to or watching the past few days is uh since Larry King passed, which I had seen his Mac and his Tyler interview semi-recently and a few other ones over the years, maybe the Prince I had like seen bits and pieces of, but I just kind of went down the wormhole of YouTube of watching Larry King interviews. Um, And I tweeted about it like late last night because I had one of those like late night cathartic (laughs) Twitter (laughs) moments, but it was just, (laughs) um, I, I just, he is really and i think what's crazy is like in his kind of later years in the just larry king now era of his doing interviews he's really he just is the master of that craft and the thing that's crazy is i always kind of pride myself and when i do interviews on doing like extensive research and he hit i saw someone wrote wrote about or talked about him specifically like blocking out a lot of the research that his team was trying to give him with the purpose of learning and what i was realizing is learning about the people that he's talking to for the first time from them with a segmented amount of information but wanting to be able to garner the information in their own words and it's kind of flipped my uh, ideology on how i conduct my own interviews and i feel like um I felt a little ashamed to admit that I hadn't really done a deep dive on him until his death, but, uh, you know, sometimes there's, there's silver lining and things and kind of what we talked about in, in MF doom is like, if this, you know, moment of, of, you know, passage on the other side creates a, a space where more people who could, you know, change how they think about rap music by listening to him because people are talking about him, that can be a really good thing. Um, and I think that has kind of happened with me and I feel like even <laughs> I have the, like I've caught the bug. And even after we do record this podcast today, I'm probably going to watch like 15 more Larry King interviews and keep, keep that going. That's hilarious. Um, Growing up actually, <laughs> Larry King and Fareed Zakaria <laughs> was such a strange combo. We're like my journalism media influences. So Larry King used to do this thing in his physical interviews where he would rest like his hand almost on his like leg or knee and then lean back when he wanted someone to react a certain way and then lean in when he was doing these probing questions just like uh subconscious body language things that I started picking up on really young and I was like how do I emulate that when I'm talking to people so that they feel a certain type of way because when Larry King does it people's communication style changes um super nerdy but yeah I love for Larry yeah love for Larry um definitely i mean if anyone's work lives on past the end of their life it's his with his interviews and he did fifty thousand over fifty thousand interviews isn't that insane (laughs) 50k is absurd like i that's so nuts how do you do that how many is that a year i actually should have done the math on that but that's that's unfathomable to me I'm going to do it right now. but The last thing I'm listening <laughs> to, I don't know, it's not music, but a podcast I've thoroughly been enjoying, in, enjoying is DJ Semtex's Hip Hop Raise Me. Facts. It's been so fun to listen to every week and such a cool different perspective 
seeing how the UK historically consumes certain things. Word. Dude, Larry King. Five, was it 50,000? He said over 50K. So, Jeez, yeah. 50,000 50, interviews over 87 years yeah. is 574 interviews per year. That's insane. Oh, damn. No, nah, that's nuts. That's almost two a day. Yeah. What, but, that, but, like, I mean, it's that more than that more because, than... like, what, he was yeah. interviewing when he was three? <laughs> exactly, right. exactly. But I think, I guess, you know, if he's really counting it, though, so, like, he was on CNN, so... And he was doing, like, multiple things at CNN a day. So in multiple shows, he probably was interviewing, like, 10 people a day. That's so wild. So that's def- definitely, like, a huge section of it, probably. But, st- I mean, yeah, it doesn't still. matter. That's still fucking amazing. Yeah, Darren King, like, he is what, one for the journalism nerds, like Josh was saying. Jeez, yeah. Like, and uh, one of my favorite interviews by him, just real quick, is the Eric Andre interview. Oh, my God. I love so that one. Wormhole <laughs> dive. It's, <laughs> it's incredible, because... He's doing a thing, like Mickey was saying, like, he doesn't want to know too much going in. Yeah. And he's just trying to figure this dude out yeah. before him. But Eric Andre is just being Eric Andre, and he just can't, he just can't do it. I know. It's hilarious. It's, like, so absurd. Yeah, word. So, before we get into um, going through these pieces, let me, I think I forgot to do it before. Uh, Brandon, who's not here today, is a little bit better at... Um, doing the introducing the pieces in a better fashion but i'll just say the names of them real quick uh before we get into the first one i'll say them in order and then josh and i believe her piece is first so we'll get into that um what's cool is i i believe ryan correct me if i'm wrong because you've been at the podcast longer than me that we've got two publications that we have not highlighted before um and then one Uh, kind of one oh one so we did the quietest before uh yeah, it's literally the last one before the year. Josh was on that episode. Of yeah, oh, yeah, I was on that episode. That's why. Word. Okay, cool. But yeah, so one very old faithful one we've only highlighted one other piece on before, and then one brand new publication. So that's really dope. Yeah. Um. So the first pa- uh, piece is called "Solidarity Beyond Borders: Why Artist Visas Are More Than a Brexit Issue" by the Quietus. Uh, that's the publication, and uh, I believe the writers are three writers. What I saw is yeah. Fie- Fielding Hope, uh, Miriam Rizai, and Stuart Smith. Uh, the second piece is how more. Uh, actually, I'm doing these out of order. The TikTok one we're doing first. Yeah, TikTok. First. TikTok first. So that'll be the second piece. Whatever, we'll figure it out. How more TikTok stars <laughs> could succeed in the music industry on Trapital by. Uh, Dan Runcy, so that's our new publication. That'll actually be the first one we talk about, which Jeshima will do, and then the quietest pieces by Ryan. And then we'll close out with um Your Old Droog believes he's accomplished something no rapper has ever done before by the legendary David Ma, and that one is on OK Player. So starting with TikTok, uh Jeshima, go for it. Introduce your piece. Amazing. Yeah, so it's a piece by Dan Runcy. I hope I'm saying his last name correctly, called How More TikTok Stars Can Succeed in the Music Industry. I thought it was really cool. Someone I met recently, ironically enough, off of Clubhouse, introduced me to Trapital. Trapital. Um, And I've been listening to the podcast and really enjoying it. It's a really interesting way to talk about trends that cross over from indie hip hop into tech sometimes, but I've been thoroughly enjoying it. So He compares TikTok to early MTV days in this piece. And I loved it. I loved it so much because I think a lot of us, at least in our age range, fell between being consumers of MTV as one of our main media influences for quite a while and then are also on this wave of everyone is on TikTok. So the dual perspective is interesting. But 
the quote he had from Michael Guido in 2004 with PBS, he's a music attorney, on his take on what MTV's done to the music industry is a similar opinion I've seen floating around by sort of a more traditionalist lover of the process on TikTok and their criticisms of TikTok. Yet both of those things are growing to be extremely important ways to distribute music. So I'm curious to hear what you guys thought of it. Uh, I thought the MTV comparison was so smart and gave me a whole new perspective on TikTok. And we've talked about TikTok outside the podcast a little bit before, Jeshima. Um, I, I am like the farthest thing from an expert. But it, funny enough, uh, I'm not on TikTok for the very record. But uh, the MTV comparison kind of gave me um, a way in and, and how to kind of sectionalize it and think about it as a benefit to artists who are trying to use it and how it's kind of trying to shake up the game. Um, so I thought I thought the breakdown of that was just really cool. Um, at the top of the piece, there's also the, uh, the, there's a picture of 24 K golden who I interviewed in 2020. Interestingly enough, um, right before mood was like on the uptick, which is the song that I'm assuming kind of blew up for him off of TikTok. Um, and this piece kind of talks about TikTok stars of like actually blowing up off of TikTok, but he kind of had a more, um, independent, uh, rise as an artist with an, an other few set of songs that I think were kind of helped by TikTok and then mood really exploded it. So I was definitely interested in a lot of the parts where Dan was kind of breaking down um, the artists who who either kind of benefits from the ground level up through TikTok versus an artist who kind of is established and then the label kind of finesses TikTok for them to help them rise. And I thought that breakdown was really really interesting and astute. Yeah, I definitely think there's some nuances in here that he breaks down in a very consumable way for people to understand what role like ad partners or labels play at any social media platform and how their content can be prioritized or amplified. And I think that's cool. I mean, I'm not on TikTok. I probably should be, but I'm not. I feel like it's a black hole for me. (laughs) But I do think it's democratized kind of how Artists can connect to creators, whether that's people who are doing dance covers or casting for music videos. It's also made it so that indie artists have access to this pool of a world and get to engage with their fans in a different way. But yeah, I mean, look like Erica Banks, right? That's her name for Busset. That came out almost a year ago and it's really popping off now because of a TikTok dance, right? So that music, that song's shelf life of popularity just cycled back. Um, so I think it's interesting, but Ryan. Yeah, like, as you were saying, like, didn't Dreams by Fleetwood Mac get a massive resurgence because of TikTok as well? Yeah, definitely. Like, there's literally no expiration date on it, which is insane. And speaking of expiration dates, like, one of the main points in the piece is that Dan made is, like, this is not going away. (laughs) And he puts into perspective, like, what TikTok went through in 2020. Like, it was literally the subject of a government investigation, (laughs) and it's still going stronger than ever. Which, yeah, so this thing is going to shape music massively. And it's a way of consuming music. Like, most of the time when the way music is consumed changes, it changes the way people structure things with their music or the sounds they go for, things like that. But as Dave Dan pointed out in the piece, he said YouTube was the only one who didn't do that. Like, right. every other sentence on here was something that was like, oh, that's really interesting and <laughs> made me think about something else. So that was just a little throwaway line, but it made me realise, oh, 
YouTube didn't change anything. It just made things more accessible. Yeah. But TikTok, it's literally breeding artists. It's amplifying already huge artists to a new level and exposing them to a somehow even new audience. And it's bringing back songs from decades ago that, you know, kids, it's just new to kids. It's just a sound to kids, you know? And So, yeah. I thought on. it was really interesting how he explains Meg the Stallion's effect and how her success can't yeah. be measured in sales because it's an entirely different strategy. And I'm all about artists getting paid, but the logic that it's similar to like the charting episode when we talked about why and how things chart. Um, I think that there's a lot at play here. I sometimes catch myself being a little bit of a like, but music deserves to be consumed this way and paid for and artists shouldn't have to be this nuanced to have people appreciate their whatever. But I'm also of mind that, you know, if the average age, and I don't know that this is the average age, but let's assume a good chunk of TikTok users are between like 14 and 22. If this is the distribution form in which they're being exposed to songs from five to six decades ago at one time, that's kind of incredible because that music would have been phased out to a certain degree by age and time otherwise. So while I may not love a remixed version of Elvis um, and while (laughs) cover artists don't credit anyone like they should... I think it's great that that music gets to live a longer life than it might might have otherwise. Yeah, it's just a big cycle of inspiration, isn't it? And you kind of see how TikTok itself is breeding artists. Like, there's this really cool graphic that uh, Dan drew for this piece. And I'm just a big fan of, like, maths and graphics and just, like, having math displayed by stick men. It's, <laughs> it's so cool. But he has this thing where um, he has all the artists on TikTok and then they get filtered through the label system, how many they pick up, then it's how many actually make it to superstardom, how many make it just to stardom and just everyone else. And how TikTok is like where all these artists are coming from and how it's li- it li- like in five years' time, our favourite artists might be people who heard on TikTok first, you know? And he breaks down the difference between um, the green stick figure, which is the indie indie distributor (laughs) artist versus the label artist. But even if people think that TikTok by virtue of tech, which, haha, apparently government investigations don't matter for anyone, even people in government in any of our countries. (laughs) So I guess it's fine. Um, I think it's interesting because what you just said, Ryan, even if TikTok, the technology changes, in one, two years, the level of impact they've had and the level... I mean, how many users does he say at the top of the piece? Hang on. Nearly 1 billion monthly active users. So if that's accurate, I mean, the amount of music exposure that would happen in, like, years one to three of that company, whether it lasts or not. Hmm. I wanted to talk about... Um the 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 focus on on labels specifically that he has with especially in that gunna meg paragraph and this is more of a question that josh and i think you might have more of insight into because it doesn't he talks a lot about um you know the for an artist like drake actually so there's he can use tiktok to use the kind of 
you know, set structure of how a label works. It just uses another tactic to get him more streams. But with Meg the Stallion, as you kind of mentioned before, she doesn't actually have the streams that would result from a TikTok thing versus like there's someone on her same label like Gunna who has more streams than her, even though he's not as like big as a thing on TikTok. So like what are, to me, that says to me, my thought was like, oh, well then maybe Meg should be independent. But it's he seemed like he was saying that's another because the the kind of major label or be it an indie label as he talks about because the major label structure isn't to set up for someone like her to succeed but it seemed like he was kind of suggesting that there is a way for major labels to still tackle an artist like meg who is in in my knowledge and i think he says in the piece signed to a major label so what are those other revenue streams that even within the structure of the major label they can take advantage of for an artist that's different like how you know meg is and her rise is so I, what he's saying here is that good news Meg's album sold less units than Drip Season Gunna's album, but they're signed to the same label. That's also he said the has he said the wrong the wrong album name too, which is funny. Um, I that too. Yeah, we're gonna have to figure that out. But it's called well the the Gunna's album name is Wanna, and on the master link on the article it goes to the actual album which is not called edits happen all the time (laughs) here for you capital um yeah so i right i think what he's saying here is less about what are the other revenue streams but more about meeting artists where they're at which he talks about later in the piece and references things like human re-resources which is like troy carter and Susie ryu but i think that it's the logic of you can't apply the strategy that you use for all artists to all artists when the way that they use something that might traditionally be seen as just the new distribution channel is letting them operate in ways that are much more than that, right? So what I mean by that is like, mm-hmm. imagine you're like, okay, we are a label, we have X resources. Typically we have options A, B, C, and D that we use for all artists to distribute. Imagine option B becomes more than a distribution platform that's a really basic channel that you're used to using and for one artist i.e meg her music on tiktok is extremely streamable and identity oriented and community building so maybe the strategy for maximizing her tiktok has to look different than the strategy for maximizing other people on her labels tiktok And so I think this conversation he's having, at least the way I perceived it, was more about labels learning to utilize the platform as a way to give creators a more unique or custom experience and lean into it more and saying, hey, don't treat it like another method to get music out and miss out on the opportunity that might be there for one artist more than the other. But I could be wrong. For for an artist to, to use TikTok for other revenue streams, yes? Versus like going directly towards getting the streaming numbers up through TikTok. And then, yeah. So then my question is though, what are those other streams that the label can get for an artist like Meg? There might not be an answer. I was just, that was the question that came. I don't necessarily, again, I don't, I'm not clear on if they're literally saying that there's other revenue streams available on TikTok other than streaming music for her. No, not necessarily through TikTok, but the meaning like she puts her stuff on TikTok, blows up through TikTok 
Um, but the label should think about her differently than an artist like Drake, who TikTok will directly lead to more streaming numbers, where Meg, it will lead to other ways I, that seem to me. At least oh, like yeah. I mean, whether that maybe. whether that is what's being said or not, that's a great conversation for us to have. I mean, I think Meg, like any yeah. any artist, any content creator, right? Any anything. This is how advertising and product placement and all these other brand partnership opportunities exist. Right. I mean, I, I'm forgetting now who was the Fashion Nova poster child for a very long time but that and cash app created an entire culture right and that came from instagram so if you look at tiktok like is there a world in which you could be capitalizing meg's collaborations with certain artists her apparel whatever else she's working on through there absolutely is that something they're going to do probably um but i haven't dug deep enough into the label contracts with tiktok to figure out if it is a streaming priority relationship Right. So then with major, that was my hesitancy was like with Meg was that I, I mean, we've talked about this a lot. Jeshima is like the lack of faith in the major label system because it's so ingrained in a certain structure. But I like that he was talking about these more independent labels starting to be on the rise because they're taking independent artists and looking at them differently in a different structure than the major labels would. And he dropped a name like empire, which I thought was really interesting because I just have happened in semi recent history to interview a lot of artists who are just starting to sign deals with empire or who are on a major and shift to empire because they had specific um kind of different needs um one was frack who i interviewed for uh central sauce if you haven't uh, read that interview he's a really cool very independent artist from the bay area um so i don't know exactly what they're doing specifically but it seems like that that makes more sense to me in my mind and i wonder if someone how meg feels about her contract and you know needing a different approach now that she's at a major label versus some like a more independent artist who's actually using a very independent minded label to to um i don't know shift their career yeah. in a way that's more i mean i think people that. also forget majors have labels that they own that are indie geared and subsidiaries and mm -hmm. music is a business just like anything else is and sure there's ambiguity and there's pros and cons but it's like it's like working for a luxury car company and then having an agency that pitches you marketing events you don't do that in-house always because it doesn't make sense to have people that have figured out a specific system for 30, 40, 50 plus years to try to learn something else and have their finger on the pulse. I mean, there's a million reasons, but, mm -hmm. you know, I think that labels are doing that too, right? Whether it's Empire, whether it's Susie's thing, whether it's whatever, artists need resources that are catered to them as individuals. And now that there's more individuals that have the ability to do mass numbers, Obviously, labels want to figure out how to capitalize on that. There's many labels whose like revenue literally comes from less than ten artists, right at large. And yeah. so you you have to start about thinking about how that's changing, right? You can now have Adele and Drake, sure, or you could have like five TikTok kids that are killing it, and you might be in in a couple of years in the same playing field. Who knows? I'm just now realizing this is the most judgmental piece in the entire world. <laughs> well, you know what's funny is me and Joshua have been plotting some some way to talk about TikTok in various forms, and we've we've finally. Made I'm sorry to not TikTok. acknowledge that TikTok's <laughs> biggest genre consumed is hip hop on our hip hop platform. I had to find a way. Yeah, we did. 
I mean, I think this is a great piece to do it on because it's a way it, it, you know, that's why I tried to open up the conversation a little bit to, so I could actually be a part of it. I think. I mean, listen, like, y'all, know, I'm not I on TikTok, but <laughs> Lord knows how many billion people did Savage on TikTok. So many. I know. Yeah. Does this, after we've, you know, we've talked about this piece, does that mean that, you know, I bit the bullet for Clubhouse and, you know, I feel like I opened a little I don't know. I had a, does this mean that I have to join TikTok? I now? had a data privacy client that really talked me out of TikTok and oh. now I struggle. But listen, I, I don't know. I don't know. The bread and the community the thing, or the privacy and the, I, I don't know. The thing about data privacy is like, besides like people actually going into my bank account and taking my money, I have given up entirely at any semblance of data privacy. Like I'm sure the government has a way to find out what all of my data is. And I just, there's no way I can go through the daily conundrum of like being stressed out about that. And I fully accepted that it's- On the next episode of Central Sauce, (laughs) we discuss Mickey's relationship with data privacy and cybersecurity. What is his search history? Find out here. All right. <laughs> yeah, let's. I have... mean, the government, the government can know that I like Nintendo. That's fine. Like, they right. can do with that what they want. Right. I don't have. Stay really tuned for Ryan Gore's TikToks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You can so follow him on TikTok over. at Gordrip. <laughs> oh, that'll be that'll be the fucking day. All right, so before we get too far off track, why don't we transition, not not very eloquently, but necessarily, to Ryan's piece. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Um, yeah, this piece is a heavy one, and I'm just now realizing that I may not have the brain power to communicate everything that I want to, so I'm very glad that I made very detailed notes so I can just read. Um, okay. So, this piece is called Solidarity Beyond Borders, Why Artists' Visas Are More Important are more than a Brexit issue. It's by Fielding Cope, Mariam Rezai, and Stuart Smith. And as far as I'm aware, all of those, all three of these people are musicians themselves. So it was really a really cool perspective to get there from them. Um, but yeah, the reason I chose this piece is because if there's anything this podcast needs more of, it's Americans talking about Brexit. So, <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> As soon as I saw, the, oh, as soon as I saw the title for this piece, it was like it clicked me. It was like I had to bring this, just because I don't know. It feels like too big of a thing to not talk about it on the music journalism podcast. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But and um, what these guys do a great job of doing is communicating the gravity of the situation. So, um, they break down this specific issue affecting British and European artists, but links it to this bigger picture of generally people's attitudes towards migration and to uh, Britain's colonial history. And that's really valuable because that is really missing from most of the country around British politics. The fact that the things the Brits complain about is like they come from the bed they made for themselves through colonialism. Like so much of it is linked to colonialism. Sometimes I write a piece about like football and I'll just end up writing about colonialism instead. So I literally wrote a piece connecting the two things. <laughs> but um, 
Um, so these three writers have crafted this really important document that questions like the very future of the music industry in the UK. Um, so this comes after the UK rejected visa free travel through Europe for mus- for British musicians following Brexit, and that also affects the musicians in Europe being able to tour in Britain. So obviously that's a huge market, kind of closed off. So in order to actually play those gigs, they would have to pay for visas and surrender portions of their merch incomes well. And that isn't only disintegrating, like, the one source of income that artists have been clinging to, like, over the last few years since streaming became, like, the norm. But as I say in the piece, it's not only that, but it's a threat to internationalism, our cultural ecology, ecology? in the future and a further blow to migrants seeking to come to the UK to live and work. So they keep the focus on musicians and artists, but it very much is a wider issue. And they go on to break down the numbers and to show how much like musicians would have to go through if they just wanted to tour in Europe or if you're or vice versa, right? So yeah, please read the piece because there is a really, really great detailed breakdown. There are so many little extra fees and or they may or may not have to pay depending on what scheme they qualify or don't qualify for. And a whole bunch of admin issues that anyone who doesn't have a huge PR team behind them is going to really struggle to like handle and is going to be really deterred to tour. They, like It's a massive deterrent to, to even try and tour, especially for independent artists, especially for artists from marginalised backgrounds, from working class backgrounds from BIPOC backgrounds. Mm. Like everything the government seems to do, they always feel the brunt of it. And uh, the one figure that I will get from the piece, and I quote, before the pandemic, 44% of UK-based musicians earned up to half their earnings in the EU. Crazy. That's massive. Yeah. And that's 44% of UK-based musicians, not just the popular, not just pop stars, not just people who can afford those fees, not just people who can def- like defer their admin work to someone else. That includes independent artists who are just their mates and their dad who's their manager, you know? Like it's a massive, massive issue. And at the end near the end of the piece I take it to an even wider scope. Mm-hmm. And again I'll quote uh, against the backdrop of, inc- of increasing border controls for artists and beyond, <clears throat> there are important questions to be asked. Who are the so-called good migrants? Who has the right to live or work here? When Britain got rich from centuries of imperialism and colonialism, waging wars that displaced countless people from their homes, and when the country accounts for 1.1% of global warming emissions, who owns the right to, quote-unquote, our land? And that's what it all boils down to, really. The fact that Brexit was... Was only even made only made a thing because people wanted Britain to remain British, but that was never possible because of the acts of Britain themselves in the glory years that these people quote as that we need to get back to you right. And if it's if you're strangling migration to the point where artists can't even go to Europe for a month or two, just to earn the money that helps the industry survive what are you even doing this for like what really is the purpose of the whole thing so yeah it's a it's a a big topic 
And yeah, I wonder if you guys thought of it. Well, this, or if you were aware of it before. Uh, definitely not. And I will say, like Ryan said about Joshima's piece, this is absolutely the most Ryan piece I've ever read <laughs> in my entire life. But I think what you're saying is is super important and the piece is such a good job of breaking down is like the the economic and cultural exports that were created literally by colonialism have become the modern core of British music today as we know it. Meaning things yeah. like reggae, grime, and drill. Um, and, uh, I mean, in Steve McQueen's new Amazon series, they really talk about the kind of like beginning parts of that, especially with reggae. Yeah. Um, but the, the limits, you know, <laughs> Britain as itself, as a colonial nation developed because of their colonialism made these new, um, types of music made the potential for them to be economically some of Britain, Britain's most, you know, potent cultural exports to then bring money into the country itself. And this kind of holding on to like whatever those absurd values are just limits them, not just artistically and culturally, but totally economically. And I think the piece did a really, really great job of breaking down that kind of step-by-step as Ryan was kind of talking about is like going super specific, then more broad. And it kind of like wavered uh, in between those two things. Um, and then, uh, just because I haven't done a Mickey pulls a quote out yet, uh, <laughs> and the the ending. This is one of my favorite ending paragraphs of a piece that I've ever, uh, I think I've ever read for this podcast. Um, specifically because it it offered up a very proactive, um, uh, you know, action based idea of, of of the solution to this problem, which is bringing it back to music and using you know actionable things in music as an example to how to conquer the wider problem um of you know the things that we were talking about about cultural exports and you know the the effects of colonialism and uh so yeah i'll just read the last paragraph and then we can talk about it more um the first step is saving the arts freeing it from the throes of bureaucracy that restricts the movement of creative workers keeping it as something we can all take part in and enjoy and making sure it doesn't become the monocultural reserve of the wealthy elites where art leads, society can follow. Big bars. Might we not look forward with hope to the end of all borders? Um, yeah, I just, I loved bringing it back home as like music is after, you know, read the breakdown of the piece, the things that we can change specifically about, uh, you know, music and musical exports in Britain can be an example to, you know, overall make the country better. Um, Josh, what do you think? This is one of my favorite articles I've read potentially in life it it might be in my like top 40 or something um if i if i had a top 40 and in in central sauce fashion you both took all three of the quotes i wrote down so i won't repeat them (laughs) but it is usually me who gets their quotes taken so it's nice to be on the yes yes (laughs) mickey's tables have turned with me in specific um i I think that all too often when we live in a culture of like polarization, whether it's in America or in the UK, anywhere in the world, people don't connect the dots between the reason progressive or left-leaning individuals point out things as problems. And this could be biased because I'm one of them, right? Like I, that's where my philosophy in life leans. But people, when they hear people complaining about wanting globalized countries or being pro-immigration or refugees, etc., what have you, they only hear the anti-Americanness or the anti-Britishness, but there's quite literal economic 
and displacement uh, consequences that happen with these decisions that no one really talks about, right? Especially in things like the arts and music. During COVID, first of all, live performance industry was probably hit harder than any other industry because there's quite literally no way, even with VR and things like complex land and, um, and 3D modules, to recreate the multi-sensory experience that is live touring and performing. And until they figure that out, which in its robust way might take two years, right? We're a year and change into a pandemic. There's been so much insurmountable loss. And I think in America, at least, live was already decreasing vastly. But in the UK, there's still this culture of, and Ryan, correct me if I'm wrong, like much because the country is just smaller than ours, but people performing at bars, certain bands from different countries doing summers or winters there, very niche genres, having a cult audience. And if you take that away, you're stripping an entire ecosystem of its culture. So often in America, it's like there's this weird thing about like X people are taking our jobs. No, they're taking jobs you literally don't do or can't. Like they're not taking anything. If anything, jobs are created for them to fill, right? So similarly speaking, if we if the UK makes it impossible for artists to perform and makes the visa requirements insane, then what is left in Britain? What is that culture? Because it's not something British homegrown artists can fill. If they could, then the opportunity for other artists to come in and capitalize on a market wouldn't even exist. Yeah, undoubtedly. And you're right, like concert culture, I guess you can call it, is a huge thing here. And one of the things that is celebrated when you talk about that industry is just how incredibly diverse it is and you do have artists from Europe especially influencing the UK market and you're basically just saying you can't do this anymore for no good reason like if you're if you think about the job of a government is to serve the people who are they serving by just saying no to this because they were offered it the EU said look artists can um get a free visa for uh, 180 days in Europe if 90 days of those are spent working. So, like, you have, a t- you have a show in 90 of those 180 days. And they just said no. <laughs> what is the purpose And it's of that? devastating because you're also reducing the amount of potential economic prosperity that could have come from people wanting to attend shows from neighboring countries or in your own country, the venues that are going to suffer from people not coming in and booking from other places. I mean, and like, I'm so glad you brought this piece because at least in my consumption of American media, I don't hear enough about Brexit, let alone Brexit's effects on the arts in the UK. Um, The world is very American and it's very disturbing, but People forget that, like, not every artist's goal in the world is to become American mainstream. People make robust livings with great audiences in other countries. So it's, like, the biggest missed opportunity to tell those people they can't come. The other thing that I wanted to bring up, too, when talking about this was um, the whole thing. The whole time I was reading this, I kept thinking that it was like, oh, my God, here we go. Here's the fucking 
major label conspiracy to try to get independent artists to go back to major labels because they can only finesse actual you know like touring abilities through major label finesse and it's like at one point or another like i can't you know we were talking about it in the piece before this and i kept looking out for it but i was just like god damn it like (laughs) here they go one way or another everyone's gonna have to like go back to being reliant on the major label system um and and this this seemed like a very like plausible like oh here we go. They, they take away the possibility of touring unless you have these middlemen connects and then everyone has to like try to actually get signed again, instead of having this come up independently. That's actually more beneficial to them. Yeah. And this is just, yeah. And this is just the the latest thing in a long, long line of things during the pandemic that, uh, as Josh was saying, how things are affecting the arts over here, the government have been awful during this pandemic. Like they have, offered nothing to like any kind of live showings like theater music there are so many people struggling and this was like another nail in the coffin of the arts industry it seems like they were very much aiming for people to um just abandon the arts they they, they literally ran an ad campaign with um telling artists to retrain in other fields like there was a picture of like a dancer and it said like her next job could be in cyber like basically Trimmer saying we are shutting down this industry we we do not care yeah. and uh, in the piece they got a quote from an MP trying to justify it so the MP's name is Caroline Diniage and she said that the concession um, is from the piece MP Caroline Diniage saying that the concession on artist visas is quote simply not compatible with our manifesto commitment to taking back control of our borders now the problem with that is they gave you the chance they gave you the chance to control your borders <laughs> this this is controlling your borders this is saying okay we don't want these brown people coming in but you know at least they're giving you a chance to say hey artists can stay for a little while they're saying no to that that is controlling your borders sorry that is a chance to control your borders i don't know yeah. it, it, and the rhetoric around brexit i know it sounds like i'm confused but i'm not because the rhetoric around Brexit has just been so xenophobic and so racist that, yeah, this isn't surprising. They just don't want anyone to come in or anyone to come out. But if that happens, what is this place? (laughs) Genuinely, what is this place? But also, even the label conspiracy logic that Mickey was talking about, I mean, that's so grand, right? Even that level of a problem, because I'm talking like, Imagine there's 10 bars in Brighton that rely on three bands from the EU that have mass audiences to play each summer for their seasonal revenue. Yeah, so I think that there's so many local businesses, but there's jobs attached to them. So when you think about what happens when someone has a concert, there's an audio engineer there. There are lights. There is production. There are waiter. Wait, there's wait staff. There's janitorial staff that monetizes from that day yeah so i think it's definitely a problem but ryan do you think there's any resolve oh um a new government (laughs) (laughs) a new government the thing is the added it's too far gone they 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 let the initial brexit campaign get so out of control that people are being fed all kinds of really harmful rhetoric and it would take a lot of undoing of that before actual progress can be made. Mm. I remember Charlie on What's Good 
a few months, maybe weeks ago, he was saying that how can we expect to be a progressive country when we can't decide whether it's a good idea to feed children? Like, where we should be... Like, it's... We're, we're too far in the wrong direction to the point where a resolve is in sight. There can be unlearning and there can be slight undoing. But overall, it's going to take... It, it's going to be a while before we can actually look forward and make progressions. Do you both foresee an economic severe downturn in the next six to 18 months that like live performers will be suffering the most from? It would have to be huge. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm petrified that we're about to go into depression 2.0 and generally in Renaissance history, it's the arts that saves us. But what if the arts is the most de- disenfranchised? Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty much their aim. <laughs> pretty much. But I don't think they see it affecting their the like overall economy because they've made a concerted effort for it to not affect the economy. Like if if all these people do what they say and retrain into like tech jobs, they'll be fine. In their eyes. But the culture of the country would just be in a ditch. Right. <laughs> right. And I mean the the idea of like like we were talking about before is, you know to to negate the idea that there is like economic benefit from the arts is so absurd yeah so where are we moving what country should we leave our countries for <laughs> well we've been talking <laughs> we've been talking about germany but berlin, <laughs> bet, berlin, berlin. berlin but bet money that they got their own problems over there that because we're in our own countries we're also not aware of yeah um since Let's we're stay. moving more uh eastern Europe as we go from America to <laughs> uh, Britain to Berlin, why don't we go all the way to Russia? And, uh, <laughs> uh, so my piece that I, I brought today is called Your Old Drew Believes He's Accomplished Something No Rapper Has Ever Done Before by David Ma. And in uh, pretty consistent fashion, as I've done many times uh, on the podcast, I brought an interview. Um, as we kind of talked about at the beginning, I'm obviously very interested in doing a lot of interviews and very interested in different styles of interviews that people do. And I thought this was a very interesting one um, that I read at the end of last year about a, a body of work that I found wildly compelling. Um, so the first thing I want to talk about, funny enough, is I had never heard of this. Uh, me and Ryan joke about this all the time, actually, which is uh, that Brandon, our, I guess, colleague, we can say, which is a funny word to use for him, but our friend who also writes for Central Sauce, who does a lot of editing for us, tells informs us of a lot of journalistic terms that we are unaware of because we didn't go to journalism yeah. school like he did. <laughs> so we're kind of writing stuff and he'll be like, oh, you should put a blah, blah, blah here. And we're like, I don't know what that is. And sometimes <laughs> we let it go. And sometimes we're like, okay, I'll bite. What does that mean? Um, so with my Miss Cam piece, I, uh, one of the notes he gave me when he was editing it was to take a which I actually didn't end up doing, but is to take uh, a line and put it at the top and use it as what he called, and I'm assuming this is a term for other journalists that you'll know, it's called a nut graph, which is basically a, and I had no idea what that term meant, and I had to do it, I'll bite, what's a nut graph? 
Um, and so basically, and then it's a pretty common thing. It's a, you know, you take a, a one line and it kind of describes the core idea of the piece, kind of like a thesis, but a little bit more succinct, um, idea of what the piece is going to be about. And I actually think this one used by David Ma was really effective in, um, in kind of the sequencing of the piece itself and giving the core idea to keep it in the back of your head for the entirety that you're reading the piece. So I just wanted to read that real quick. And then he follows the nut graph by a one line thing that feels like this kind of transition from it specifically to the top of the piece, which I think is a really smart kind of thing to kind of lodge in your brain starting out. Um, so he goes, we talked with Yurl Droog about his new album, working with artists like Mac Hami, Side note, what who Ryan's very excited to talk about and the God Fahim and exploring his Eastern European roots in his music. And then he does a one line thing where he says Droog in Russian means friend. So you kind of have this idea in your head right off the bat that this is going to be a, a specific piece where that profiles kind of your old Droog's um, dive through his music into his heritage in seemingly like the first time he's kind of going to go in a dive deep and fuse those two worlds. And no matter where David Ma chooses to go with his interview or in the piece, you're always going to be thinking that as the core theme, which really helps build, um, even in just such a, it's, you know, it sounds very regular, simple sentence. It really kind of builds this, uh, inherent through line in everything that follows. Um, so Ma, you know, barely even in the intro, though that idea is lodged in your head, very barely even really mentions it at the top of his album. He said that at the top of the piece um, about that kind of dive exactly. And then waits really for Droog to kind of talk about it in the top of the in the top of the interview. He slightly mentions uh, in his intro that his album Jewelry from 2019 embraces Jew Jewish roots. And then this and then this album the interview he's covering is embracing his Russian roots, but then he talks about his rap rap ability and who has embraced him. So Ma cleverly indicates how Drew needed others to fully accept, uplift and embrace him to allow him the space to truly on all levels, embrace himself, which has now resulted in the most interesting body of work that he's ever put out. But then he lets, like I said before, he lets Drew truly say it all himself in the interview rather than explicitly saying it in his own words, but you still, again, have that idea in the back of your head of like, okay, but I know what this is about to be about. So then when Drew kind of opens it up, kind of, and this is funny, I didn't think about this before, it's similar to kind of Larry King is like, it becomes much more interesting if you allow the person you're interviewing the space to really express themselves wholeheartedly. Um, and so, yeah, um, I have plenty of other things that I can talk about. Um, but I think that's kind of a good place to start since you can kind of just from that intro understand where the, the interview is going. But first, let me hear from you guys about um, what parts of the intro or the interview you found compelling. And I'll go back to some other things that I thought were compelling. I did not know that a synopsis or summary at the beginning of a piece was called a nut graph. So thank you, Brandon. Um <laughs> That that blew my mind. I also love that you said, I'll bite. Tell me about the nut graph. I feel like I could take that sentence out of context and get Mickey in lots of trouble, which I love. Um, Ryan, oh, go man. ahead. <laughs> yep. Yeah, look at us learning about actual journalism terms on our journalism podcast. I know, right, right. <laughs> Makes <laughs> me feel slightly unworthy, but hey, we're learning this all together, guys. Yeah, it's funny because Brandon introduced me to that term as well, like a few weeks ago. Brandon oh, and the Nut Graphs. Yeah. It sounds like a band name. 
Right, right, right. <laughs> so what what parts of the interview, um, and I'll talk about mine for sure, but what parts of the interview specifically about kind of Drew opening up did you guys find um, most interesting and most compelling? Well, for me, it was the fact that it was extremely open at all. Because the kind of vibe you get from Drew's music is very, like, dusty New York, dude, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of the aesthetic that his music carries. But yeah. I think as much as it is Drew opening up, it's David Marr's questioning. It's just so perfect because yeah. what he does incredibly well is, like, through his questions, give me a connection to an album that I listened to for the first time while reading this piece. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he found those questions that make you, make, just make it so easy to, for you to understand Drew's journey yeah. and his intentions with the album. Yeah. And then you listen to it and it just falls into place perfectly. Like when he's talking about the samples specifically. Definitely. Yeah, that's definitely Eastern one European. That's actually my favorite question because I do a lot of music yeah. writing tied to heritage and ethnicity and my biggest grievance constantly is that People will say something to the effect of, Ryan, wow, you're Indian, so this song is Indian, so this production is Indian, so it must be Indian. But the way he phrases it, yeah. he's like, talk about the production side. Damn. All right. Yeah, I just got to wait for her to come back in because I don't want to cut off that thought. That was actually good. Hey, yeah, he we, says we stopped. I didn't. Yeah, he yeah, says, ahead. talk about the production side and the samples that were used. What was the process of working with the production pr producers on here? Like the samples seem so in line with your ethnic roots. That's such a beautiful way of asking someone what their musical preference was rooted in. And the fact that it happens to seem like it might align with the nature or the theme that's in that song. Um, so I thought that was like the most beautiful way to ask someone to talk about their roots and heritage without making it about their roots and heritage as opposed to them as an mm. artist and their artistry. I also think it's incredible that he yeah. was even willing to open up about a topic like this because I think people often forget that, uh, how do I put this? Caucasian facing folks also have immigrant narratives. Mm. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, it's it's kind of creating, and he does it through the through line. Is 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 creating that that bridge to his heritage always centers around uh, the craft that he's worked so hard on, and I think David Ma has an inherent understanding that that is the the path in a respectful and also what happens is then the the answers to the questions become that more in, that much more interesting if you can keep it based in the music. Um, so yeah, I think he did a really good job with that as well. Um, yeah, and he really seemed to understand the emotion of the album. Yeah. And I wonder how many times he managed he actually listened to it before the interview. Because yeah. it came out around when the album came. It must have felt quite like in advance because it takes me a long time to process an album to the point where I can ask questions about the album. Yeah. But he seemed to really, really understand the motivations. Yes. And really been able to figure those out while listening to the album before this interview right it definitely it, well this interview so much opens up the album as this kind of like you you have this at least for me i don't know if this is the same for you Ryan, but i you kind of mentioned it a little bit is like i had this image in the back of my head of this sort of like i mean i keep using this phrase and i have this thing in the back of my head that thomas hobbs said which is to not use the word catharsis but i i don't know what the better word is um if you listen to the thomas hobbs episode i think that's still in there but he has this you can hear this kind of like cathartic connection 
to to the roots of his music while he's spitting and i i i mean i don't know if it's kind of like a uh, a little bit of trickery but it feels like droog even when you hear the features on the project he like sits in the pocket of the 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 samples in a way that does feel inherently different than any of the other rappers. Like he, he really finds, and that's why it's the most compelling project. And I, I actually like have been down with your your old Drew from the beginning of his career when the EP came out and everybody thought he was Nas, but I like, there's something that's so inherently like, Oh my God, like this totally the way that he kind of navigates these samples naturally and finds the pockets. It feels like he's connecting to some, very more spiritual thing than even any of the other rappers on the project. And then, um, I also wanted to mention this, let's, it's a, uh, it's actually not a Larry King thing is that I watched, um, cause it was a Mac anniversary as there are many of, I watched Elliot, uh, Wilson interview Mac Miller semi recently too. And he was talking to him. Mac was talking about how he, uh, only wants features from people where he's bringing them into his world and he never wants a feature where he's like oh I did a song that's kind of like oh, yeah. uh, Rick Ross so that Rick Ross would like you know do a song with me that felt good to him and he's like no I want to hear what they sound like in my my soundscape in my sphere and I felt like that was inherently true on this too and it was really interesting to hear how the other rappers navigated his space and then to hear him or read him talk about it um felt really cool too i really liked what he had to say about the the billy woods feature particularly yes what what i found most interesting about it is that like this is the first project i think you're saying that you got um fahim to was it fine was it a and r basically like i find think it's either a and r executive produce yeah executive producer mac was definitely an executive producer as well yeah but um yeah it was interesting that it was fahim's influence that brought the Eastern European sound and right. found those Eastern European beats and shout out to Argoff who's on the album. Yeah. Who's uh yeah, absolutely killed it. But um it was the fact that Doom sounds not Doom, jeez. Droog <laughs> sounds so at home on these beats. Yeah. And then when another voice comes in, like another artist comes in, it's so so drastically different. Right? Oh yeah. Like when, when Fahim comes in in that in that first song that he's on, um, it's such a different thing. But then Mac comes in and I love Matt Klein, by the way, like the way he's rhyming on that song. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. Ridiculous. Who rhymes like that? Who rhymes like that? But no one, Ryan, no one else no rhymes one. like that. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan's a, yeah. our, uh, our resident huge Matt Kami super fan. Shouts, shout I'm out, not even that. <laughs> shout I'm out Yo Phillips, though, for sure, too. He's yeah, the shout only out person to who measures up as a Matt Kami fan. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not even on that big a level. But I did like how he, he referenced, he shouted out Fedas Desmort as like, that's my favourite on the album. Because I'll produce the whole thing and Navy Blue did one of the songs. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, side point. But those three, that trifecta of Droog, Fahim and Makami, basically putting this album together, that song is kind of a, a testament to how cohesive the album feels despite all of them just attacking it differently. Yeah. And then you you talk about the um, the really insane, like if you could pick rappers for a posse cut, I don't think you'd come up with something more random than no, Drew Black Thought LP LP. Who else was Matt it? Con- Matt Conley. There like, might be one more on there too. <laughs> probably. <yeah. laughs> was it Fonte? Oh, was it Fonte? Maybe. Was that a different? I song? don't know. I don't know. 
Maybe. Anyway. Yeah. But anyway, just like this album has so many different voices and just feels so cohesive. And the fact that Billy Wood sounds so at home. Billy Wood sound home at anything, but he yeah. sounds so at home yeah. on this project. Yeah. Over these beats. Yeah. His universe is so different to Drew's. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, here's the the super weird and interesting kind of thing is like I definitely have Eastern European kind of heritage in me mm. and you know me and Ryan have talked about this a lot is like there's a segment of like the kind of art rap stuff that connects way more to him but I feel like I got like with Billy Woods is like not an artist that I necessarily like totally connect to but that verse on here made me so much more interested to take more of a deep dive into his music and I wonder if it had like I had such a specific appreciation for this album to where that kind of part of my heritage I know a little bit about but it's like less of a uh, like inherent thing that i was raised on so it there yeah. this felt like kind of a through line to a different type of rap to me to listen to this album too and then to hear kind of his story of 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 that Dave, david ma again really crafted so well of like you know being not that i was i'm not russian particularly nor was i clown but it was just interesting for he talked about being clown for being russian and then he kind of like connected to his community through rap Mm. on some level and then like as ryan was talking about how then like you know fahim found these samples and was like it almost was like this kind of necessary push that he needed right. to find and then droog says things like um how he wishes he had done it so much sooner because he feels like you know he found this pocket that he didn't have before that's so natural to him i also feel like yeah Drew like, was the most you... honest God. In this interview mm. right like and I think when people are honest especially artists or in hip-hop we're always looking for them to say something that's like profound or um, almost like an invasion of privacy right like uncovering something super deep that we didn't know about them but he's really saying things all of us think so when I talked to Samira recently a lot of our conversation was similar to the a lot of artists just want the focus to be on the art and that's not that they want to absolve themselves of responsibility about being active participants in their community or world, but they just want the art to be able to be appreciated without them needing to match its aesthetic or show up with it in a certain type of way. So I loved his answer. And his answer about fame was a 10 out of 10 for me uh, in this piece. Yeah. He goes, what's fame? <laughs> Everybody's thing. famous today. Your grandma's lit on Instagram. I might be in her DMs. Like, <laughs> what? And we all know that shit's true. Everyone's in someone's mom's DMs. Yeah, facts. And then he goes on to say, I wanted the fans' attention to be on the work and music so much that I purposely kept myself out of it early on, and that backfired on me because the losers were only interested in the person behind the music. And that was so profound to me. Super profound. Because then inherently you kind of know, based on where he's at now and all of the people that have given him the validation, that early on, while that was like taking an L to him, that now it's actually created more longevity. And he talks about um, how the industry cuts checks and why fame matters and that. And I think it's this marketing logic, which I've said a million times to people, is like products and services don't sell, people do. And to some degree, music is this weird, art is this weird in-between where an art can resonate with people as though it's a person or has fragments of a person. But even that has a shelf life if there's no personality attached to it. So is it wrong or is it right? I'm not sure. But... Hands down, best last question answer ever. 
<laughs> what's worse than being a corny ra- what's worse than a corny rapper and he said being a rapper is corny I'm not going to agree or disagree because I don't want to get cancelled but like the truth is the truth is the truth and we all still do it anyway yeah totally what's wrong well I mean yeah Then the, the next follow up line to that is like who doesn't do corny shit yeah exactly yeah it's perfect a little nutty about something <laughs> oh definitely yeah yeah, I mean, the, I I definitely wanted to be like a fly on the wall when David Ma got that answer. Well, it's such a crazy question because it's like, dude, did you know that? Like, have you heard him? I was even like, have you heard him say that before when he's been asked that question? Or right. did you do Like, it seems like you had some sensei ass. Like, no, listen, whether <laughs> it's like authentic. Like, this dude is about to say being around. Yeah. Whatever it is, it's, it's like also just to... really good wit, right? It's great interviewer, interviewee banter definitely yeah yeah um this is just making me think of and it's not necessarily that it's shock but uh this is just a quote that it's funny and i'm just doing 85 deep dives into different people's interviewing skills but the one i did right before larry king is just jesus and marrow and um they the thing that's so wild about them is they're so free you know they're free bone. They're just really just kind of like, they have a little bit of a structure, but they're really like living in the moment with it. But then they'll have these bars out of nowhere that are just so composed and like very philosophical. And one was, there's no, I think Marrow said it is there's no longevity in shock. Um, and it's not mm-hmm. that this is like, uh, inherently what Drew is talking about at the beginning of his career that he didn't benefit from is like, it was like a shock value thing necessarily but that kind of instantaneous gratification of people wanting that type of thing um it just he had the where he's like dope that he had the wherewithal to know that like even if he's not getting bags straight out straight out the you know the beginning of this in the like you know the ways that he could um he's better for it now when you quoted Mero, i am a product of media and in my head was like envisioning a three-point shot going in and <laughs> recording Meryl hey man listen Jesus and Meryl you're the legends I hope you find your way to this podcast yeah because I really like that quote um word. there's no longevity in shock it's a bar that shit stuck mm-hmm. with me unforgettable it's so funny how the things um, that permeate our minds so deeply are often succinct statements of things we all feel but don't ever articulate yeah do you guys okay this is a funny thing do you guys have a friend who does that because we're all all kind of journalist minded and very like you know i mean at least i i shouldn't speak for everyone for myself i'm very like analysis first let's talk about this for like i mean i guess it's the reason why i'm doing a podcast but you know i like very have a tendency to overthink and don't bring things down to those kind of succinct one bar lines but i have one friend who's so good at doing it and he has said things just totally offhand when i've been kind of like venting to him about figuring things out and he'll just say this like da 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 and i'll be like Oh, yeah, that's really all it is, isn't it? I think it's Ryan. I friend. <laughs> I think for me it's Ryan. <laughs> with the same thought. Right. Ryan, I'll, Ryan I'll like, slack Ryan and be like, oh, my God, I'm the most awkward person on a podcast ever. And he's like, no, says three words that are brilliant and everything is fine again. And it's like I had to go through a 12-message self-analysis for him to say four words that would make me fine. <laughs> Yeah, I am that friend. I am that friend. Word. <laughs> but yeah, before we uh, close out, shout out to David Ma. Shout out to Dad Bod Rap Bod. 
is one of my favourite, uh, probably my favourite music, music podcast I've hey. ever listened to. It's incredible. And shout out to Drew, who has me blocked on Twitter. Why? What? Really? Yeah, Why? I told you this. He's blocked me. Wait, I think we knew this. Wait, I don't think I did. Know. Was I not listening? What? What? Dude, I was talking to you. Like, you tell me about this project. And I was like, oh, but by the way, did you know you blocked me on Twitter? He followed me for like a week and then he blocked me. Why did he block you? What did you say? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I know. I'll never know to this day. But I know he tends to block a lot of people just like... Yeah, I've seen him me. do that on Twitter, but I feel like you have to give him some impetus. I don't... You have I to say like, fuck you, Drew, or something. I don't know. Maybe he just doesn't like Marvel movies and... <laughs> you know what? You know what it is? He didn't want to... He didn't want to submit to the anthology, Ryan. He doesn't want to share... He doesn't want to share his stories with us. It's okay. It's okay. All right. da- David Ma, when you're listening to this podcast, hit up your boy Drew. Tell him to block Ryan. <laughs> it's funnier as it is. <laughs> you know what, Drew? You do what you need to do for your media mental health. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fine. If it's in service of your mental health, Drew, I'm just fine. <laughs> right. well, I think it's just collateral damage. No reason to block. <laughs> yes. And I'm fine with that, you know. Alright. Alright. There's no well, longevity in shock. I really like this episode. There is no, no longevity in shock. shock. Alright, y'all. Thanks for listening. Thanks, guys. Rate and review Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Really helps really helps grow the podcast. Send us new music. And uh, tell us what episodes you enjoy. Oh, and send and journalists. Journalists for especially smaller publications we haven't highlighted, please feel free to DM, email any of us your pieces so we can read them and potentially talk about them on the show. Yeah, this is a really coherent ending, guys. <laughs> this episode of Asserted Source featured Josh Mwadera, Mickey Hellerback, and Ryan Gould, Essential Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Chaito, the Fifth and Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked by Basti. Thanks to Charles Preckers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source from Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Links with Bass Teach, Your Records, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source. <laughs> <laughs>